I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 tonight, we've been kind of bouncing around different psalms, seeing uh, different lessons, different uh, truths from the life of David, mostly. Uh, not every psalm that we're going to examine in the next couple of weeks is uh, from David, of course, but uh, at least these few that we've looked at so far have been. And uh, each one, I think, is profound in that it gives us an opportunity to glean something from David's life, which I've sort of kind of called, <laughs> I've, I guess you could say, developed this title afterwards, sort of Lessons from David's Languishing. <laughs> Uh, languishing is just a big word, which means weariness. You're worn out. You're you're almost just exhausted from the things that you've had to endure and see and and overcome, uh, which is a, a good word for David's life, <laughs> because essentially that's what we're doing. We're we're seeing David at points of his life when he literally is languishing. He is a worn out, weary soul, and he is bearing his soul to his Lord, which. I think gives us a great opportunity to learn some really profound lessons about faith. And I know I've said it in passing or in previous or other venues perhaps, but I'll say it here, especially as we approach this particular psalm, Psalm 63, that our faith, the faith that we have, that we would say uh, that defines us as Christians, is not a force field against suffering. And I, that's not an overly, I would say, profound thing to say, but I think it's something that is good to be remind, reminded of because believing in God, going to church, and all the things that go along with that, the things that are very much most precious to us when it comes to being believers, those who are of the faith, as Jude says, once delivered unto the saints, all of that does not mean we will not suffer even though there are some times, I would say there are some preachers and some Christian circles that would make you believe otherwise. That if all you need to do is give and send us a seed offering or something and all your hurt will go away. All your heartache will be taken away. Which, what they really mean is make a, a check payable to such and such ministry won't be able to take your suffering away. At least that's what it sounds like. And I think that that's a kind of deceitful teaching. But I would say also it's not even, it's not just not biblical, it's also just not realistic either. This idea that it, your faith can preserve you from some heartache or hurt. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 17 says this, and if children, he's talking about those who are in the church, those who are now, as he says in Romans 8 at the beginning, those who have no condemnation stamped on them. He says later on in that same chapter, Romans eight seventeen, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Does he end there? No, he actually adds this amazing little phrase that I actually have a strong disliking to in some ways. Because he says, we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. Or, in some translations, it's, it's rendered, provided that we suffer. So it's almost to say, not that this is a condition of our, of our being in Christ, but it just is, we're going to have it because we're in Christ. It comes along with the fact that we are pledging allegiance to Jesus. It comes with the territory, so to speak. Suffering follows those who are aligning, aligning themselves with Christ, with his gospel, with his church. It, it's, it comes with all of those things. And he says at the end of that verse, that we may also be glorified together. And that's the tremendous hope, right, of our Christian lives. 
the lives that we live, that our suffering will be transformed. It will be one day reversed. It's the great hope that we have. And I think what makes that verse so profound, at least for me, especially for the, because it comes from the Apostle Paul, is that it comes from someone who was familiar with suffering. He wasn't writing from some ivory tower. He wasn't writing from some place where he was removed from a lot of the Christian life and a lot of the turmoil that went along with that. We can just read what happened to Paul. Read the book of Acts. Read 2 Corinthians where he sort of uh, alliterates and he sort of transcribes all of the things that he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. He was writing from a place of experience when he says that we are heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him. Which is just to say that suffering is something that we all have to grapple with. That we all have to uh, sort of try to make sense of sometimes, I would say. And sometimes that brings about some of our frustration is because we can't make sense of it. I'll be honest with you. I wish, <laughs> still talking about Romans 8, I wish that phrase wasn't there sometimes. I wish he had not put that part about suffering with Christ, and maybe you have the same wish. But what's that old saying? I think it's usually attributed to Benjamin Franklin, but the quote is, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. (laughs) And I think I would add suffering to that, and maybe that's included in there. Death, taxes, and heartache. Those are the, uh, always the things we can count on in this life. And that's because of the world we exist in. It's a world that is broken. As uh, Brother Chapin was talking about this morning, it's a world that God created. God created very good, and then a fracture happened. A break happened. Some, uh, some intrusion happened, which of course we know is sin. And ever since then, we've been in a world that hasn't been like it should be. Something is just slightly off kilter. Or perhaps really off kilter, how, how it seems lately. <laughs> which is just to say this, I think. And I think this is bringing it full circle back to King David. Faith in God is not a denial of the brokenness of the world. It's not, when you say, I have faith in God and that all of these things will be made right. That's not, that's not to say that we are like ostriches who bury our heads in the sand to say everything's just rosy and unicorns and rainbows and everything's going to be all right. It will, we know it will. But I think the true benefit, the true hope, the true joy of faith is that we have that news in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of suffering. It's not a denial of those things. It's it's an accepting of those realities, knowing that there is a God who is above it. There is a God who is not only above it, but there is a God who is with us in the middle of it. That, I think, is what David is bringing to bear in many of his psalms. This true acceptance, true hope of of all of these things in the midst of a world that was grievous. And I think that's also true, too, that David's world, even though it's thousands of years ago, right? He's writing in Old Testament times, which we, at least in my mind, perhaps maybe I'm just... Uh, uneducated, but I, I think about it as being so far removed from us. In many ways it was. There was a lot of cultural differences. But his world is not too dissimilar to ours. There's maybe cultural and political differences, but the, the, he had a lot of the same troubles that we face, a lot of the same family squabbles, perhaps on different scales. 
But I think also the amazing thing too is the same God that was preserving David throughout all of those days of, of, of running and sprinting and, and, and fleeing for his life. All of those days of just abject horror and heartache. The same God who is preserving him all of those days is the same God that you and I have right this very evening. Which I would say means we have the same hope that David had. We have the same peace that David had. We have the same joy that David had. Even in the midst of all of those days of suffering, we have the same God. And I think that that is going to be tremendously impactful. At least it was for me when I was studying this particular psalm, Psalm 63. In which I think there's three ways in which God meets the souls that are suffering here in this particular psalm. So the first one is this. A way that God meets sufferers in the midst of their suffering is just this. The thirsty soul's replenishment. The thirsty soul's replenishment. Notice, in, at least in my Bible, it has a prefix to it. I don't know if yours does too. It says perhaps a psalm of David. And mine includes this little note that says, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Maybe yours doesn't have that. Those prefixes aren't really inspired per se, but they're there based on a lot of tradition. And I would say that this particular note is not very uh, specific. David spent a lot of time in the wilderness of Judah. This isn't really narrowing it down for us where we can be definitively sure of when this was in David's life. We can try and theorize based on some of the hints in David's words. But I think it's actually better to leave it open-ended. This, this song that comes out of David's wandering in the wilderness because I think it, it, rather than tie it to a very specific time, a very specific day in David's very specific life, this, as he describes in verse 1, this dry and thirsty land that he was walking through, that he was trudging through, I think can remind us of our own sort of wastelands of suffering. But he has this confession that he begins with. Notice verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen in the sanctuary, this is his confession, this is his hope that he knows that his soul is thirsty, he is a parched soul in the midst of this wilderness. And this thirst that his soul feels is only slaked, only quenched as he communes with his Lord. As he says, I thirst for you. This was his experience in the sanctuary. You can imagine David worshiping in the sanctuary of his God. In his days it would be the tabernacle. And he's praising the Lord there. Worshiping as a good Israelite would do. And his experience there is this tremendous feeling as he says there of this power and glory. When you get this I just get this picture to sort of stay with the whole thirst imagery. He's like a cup under a running faucet. And when he's in the sanctuary, his cup is running over with this tremendous outpouring of God's power and glory, which fills him up. And you see, when he is in the midst of this dry and thirsty land, what is he longing for? What is he craving? His soul craves that same type of filling. 
fulfilling that he had in the sanctuary, he desires to have here in the midst of this desert, in the midst of this, as he says, this land where no water is. Even there, who can fill him? Even there, in the midst of this wilderness, who can quench his soul's thirst? It's only the Lord. It's only his God. And notice, as he confesses this, he longs to see this power, to see this glory, as he's seen in the sanctuary, he wants to see it here in the desert. And notice, as he says, he does get a glimpse of this, because notice in verse 3, down through verse 5, notice what he says. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. He praises God and he prays to God. Yes, I want to see your power and glory. I want to see the outpouring of your loving kindness. Because as he says there, it's better than life. He says, I want to go back to those days of worshiping in the sanctuary. Those days like that I want to have here too. That's what will sustain me. That's what will fill me. As he says, that's what shall satisfy me. All of that. All of those other things that he could rely on, hope in, trust in. They were nothing compared to the loving kindness of God. That's what the sanctuary for David was filled of. The power and glory was the outpouring of God's loving kindness for a soul. Precisely like David. And here he says he's praying to see it. And that's what makes this desert almost turn into an an oasis. (laughs) That's what makes this, this, this place of, of famine and waterlessness turn into a feast. As he says, I, I will be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. It's words that are indicative of just eating of just tremendous delicacies. For me, this would be like partaking of prime rib. <laughs> I love a really nice, juicy prime rib. Cooked really rare. And it's just filled with all of that awesome au jus sauce, or ever pronounce it, with some mashed potatoes and green beans on the side. That is a delicacy. <laughs> you get that sort of image with David here, that that's what his soul is feasting on, the loving kindness of his God. You can see again here how he is a soul that is tired and weary and worn out, and what meets him. What fills him in that languishing is this faithful love of God. Notice, that's exactly what loving kindness means. That's a very King James word. (laughs) Loving kindness just smashed together there. We don't see that type of word often in other places. But it literally just means that. Love that is faithful. Love that is strong. Love that is enduring. And such is the love that God has for you and for me. He fills us with that love, that faithful love that allows us to have faith in the midst of suffering and frustration and anguish and pain in the midst of places like David would describe, wastelands. Perhaps he was, yes, here in a literal wasteland, in a literal wilderness, but perhaps for you and for me it's something more spiritual that we endure. And I would say, indeed, that 
the world in which we live, we could very much accurately describe it is a dry and thirsty land. We, have, we are in a day and age, I would most definitely say, that is spiritually arid, spiritually dry, spiritually waterless. And there are so many things that are being offered up to souls as the quote-unquote answer to life. Here's how you can have satisfaction. Here's how you can be filled. Here's how you can be lifted up out of your languishing. But none of those things deliver. None of those things ever satisfy. None of those things ever leave us full. If you want an extended version of that sort of treatment or that sort of discussion, read Ecclesiastes. (laughs) That's essentially what Solomon's there talking about. I've tried this and I've tried that. All of these things leave me in the same place as a place of vanity, he says. I think that's exactly what David here describing, this dry and thirsty land. What does it result in? It results in a world full of parched souls. (laughs) I think that's one of the things that makes me so convicted when I don't talk to people that are around me, is thinking about their soul. The, the, the neighbors that you have, the coworkers that we have, the friends and family that we have that perhaps don't know Jesus, they're not just people that don't have faith. They're people that are, that they are souls who are dehydrated. <laughs> they're thirsty. They're longing for something to fill them, to quench this thirst that they have. And they're going to this, that, and the other thing to try and do it. And yet they're always finding themselves empty. There's only one thing that ever will satisfy. <laughs> this isn't my notes, and I don't know if I should do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, we, me and Natalie were just watching this documentary. It was about this controversial cult called Heaven's Gate. Maybe you remember this really scandalous story back from 1997. It ended up with a lot of people taking their own lives. But what's so fascinating is the process of all of this. All of these people that are going and, and pledging allegiance to this, this very scary cult that had all of these very scary rules and and beliefs and we could say doctrines. And yet, what I think is good about this particular documentary is that they describe what led these people to actually want to do that. No one would say, I want to join a cult. That's not how people join cults. They join them because they are promised that this thing will fill them. This thing will fulfill them. This thing will give them this spark that they're missing. And every single one of those people saw that in this particular man's message. The one who was deceiving all of these people. All these people who pledged allegiance to this horrible uh, house of cultic worship. They were vulnerable souls who I would say very much were thirsty. They were parched. They were looking for something. They had come from seasons of brokenness, seasons of frustration, seasons of disappointment where something that they had was precious was taken away or something that they had that they wanted was not fulfilled for them. And they were met by this message that came at, we could say, the wrong time. And it led them off into a way that left them, left them on their deathbeds. And I think that that's a good representation in a very extreme setting of what we're talking about with souls who are around us who are thirsty. They're looking for something to satisfy. They're looking for something to fill. They're looking for something to quench that thirst. And there's only one place that can do it. 
It's not some such random belief. It's not anything that they can get or acquire for themselves. There is only one source where a soul can truly be replenished, filled all the way up, brimming to the top. It's what Jesus describes himself as, living water. You go out and you'll try all these other things. And as Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman in John 4, he says, you can go out and try and drink of that, but you're always going to be thirsty. You're always going to have to go to that well again. But the water that I give you will have you leaving you without thirsting ever again. And of course, he's talking about himself. He's talking about his life being given to them to this particular woman, to this particular world. That's the hope that we have. This is the love that's better than life. As here David has been describing, it's the living water that fills a thirsty soul, that replenishes it all the way to the brim. So we come back to this. Thirsty souls who are craving something to fill them, what are we offering them? There's a great verse in Proverbs 25. I invite you just to copy it down. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs 25, 25. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And I would say that that very accurately describes what our mission is, as Brother Chapin was talking about this morning, mission of the church. We are souls who have been given a canteen full of endless water that we can go out and share with others. It's cool water to other thirsty souls, souls who are craving something to quench, quench their thirst. The thirsty soul's replenishment comes with the living water. But notice number two, back in Psalm 63, the tired soul's rest. The thirsty soul's replenishment, the tired soul's rest. Because notice in verse number six and seven, we'll we'll get to. Because one of the other things I appreciate about David, in all of his psalms, all of the places that he's writing, he's very honest about the fact that, that the nighttime does something to him. When, when he is trying to go to sleep, there is something about, as he calls it here, the night watches that keep him up. And I think it's because he knows that, and maybe you've experienced the same thing, but when you're trying to go to sleep, the quiet is there. Perhaps it's the first quiet moment you've had all day. And your mind is finally able to rest. And your mind doesn't want to rest. It wants to think about all the things that caused you anxiety and fear and regret. All the things that you might have done wrong. And maybe you're brought to mind some random thing from fourth grade that you're like, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) All these rushing things come back to your brain. David was very familiar with that, I would say. Just reading some of the things that he talks about. And I was... I had to pause and think about, as, as we read verses 6 and 7, and think about David and perhaps his troubles going to sleep, think about some of the places where David was sleeping. As we know, in his early life, he was on the run from uh, his best friend's dad, the, the then king of Israel, Saul. And he was running in the caves. And that's where he was sleeping, His beds were the damp floors of caves and his pillows were just rocks as he was fleeing from place to place as a fugitive of the very kingdom he was anointed to rule. 
And I don't think it's, it's, it's no stretch of the imagination. It's not too difficult to think about that this man after God's own heart is putting himself to sleep, as he says here, by meditating on his Lord. That's the only thing that worked. Notice verse 6. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. The only thing that was allowing David to get any sort of sleep was this insistence on resting in the memory of God's past help. All of the the ways that he has been delivered through all of those amazing ordeals and events that he has been through. That's what David's mind is going to. That assurance gives him the ability to sleep. And that's what's brings him to this phrase, as he says there in verse 7, that the shadow of God's wings, which is a lovely picture. It's one that's repeated uh, multiple times throughout the Psalms. Psalm 17, Psalm 36, Psalm 57, Psalm 61, Psalm 91, Psalm 121. You can, you can very much see just from those repeated places that this was a precious image for David. A precious image of this very intimate form of protection. As a mother eagle covering the eaglets with her wings, he is being protected in the shadow of God's wings. And this is what would combat all those overwhelming thoughts of worry that seemed to intensify during the night watches, as he says. He's consciously trying to remember. and He's not counting sheep. He's counting the ways that God has helped him. Because <laughs> he knows that's where he could be safe. And I sympathize with David. Because, and I, I'm going to say something and my, my wife is going to snicker at me. But sometimes it's a challenge to go to sleep. And not... Because I have a hard time going to sleep. Because I, not only smiling at me. Because as soon as I hit the pillow, I'm out. Like it's like very quick. <laughs> it doesn't take me a long time to go to sleep. But that doesn't always mean that I get really good sleep. You ever wake up and it feels like you've run a, uh, a 5K? <laughs> and you're just really tired when you wake up. And there's times where I've just woken up for, in the middle of the night for no good reason. Who knows what woke me up. But I just woke up and I'm, now I'm awake. Which is just to say, uh, also, I have this very vivid uh, memory in my mind of of being a really young kid and having lots and lots of anxiety trying to get to sleep with all of these thoughts just running in my mind. I remember just going to my mom one night talking about how my mind was racing with this all of these things that I couldn't get my mind to to be uh, at ease and be still. Sometimes I'm just way too tired and I don't have to worry about that. Other times that's still very much the case. Where my mind just goes. Maybe you can relate. And maybe, as I would say, the events of the past couple of years haven't really helped anyone with those sorts of problems. David, I would say, knew and I would say he was on to something. Because in those days when he felt pressed to the max, when he felt so much anxiety and worry and fear, what is he counting on? What is he resting in? The help of his Lord. That's what allows his tired soul to finally be at ease. He was thinking about the ways God helped him. 
He was gripped in the promises of his God. And that's where his soul was finding rest. The thirsty soul's replenishment, the tired soul's rest. And lastly, look at verse 8 down through the end of the psalm. I would call this the terrified soul's refuge. The terrified soul's refuge. He closes this particular psalm, at least as he closes this stanza, uh, with verse number 8. As he says here with this really amazing refrain, My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. It's this confession and this, I would say, his, his longing and vow to follow hard after the Lord, which that's a great King James phrase, but it literally just means to cling or to cleave or to stick. And he's clinging and cleaving, following closely on the heels of his Lord because he knows that there is no other place of, as we've already uh, sort of delved into, there's no other place of satisfaction, there's no other place of rest than with his Lord. So he resolves to cling to his Lord, to follow hard after him, to hold fast to the Lord is a great phrase. Come what may And I think what's amazing about that phrase, so he says, my soul followeth hard after you. I'm going to follow close on your heels. And he's able to say this, not because of his amazing faith, but because of what follows that particular truth. As he says, because, we could add, thy right hand upholdeth me. He can follow hard because God's holding on to him. He can cling to God because God has an even tighter grip on him. That's literally what the word upholdeth means. It means to grasp or as in that beloved hymn that we've sung recently, Christ holds fast. That's what that word means. Hold fast, hold firm, hold strong. And that's where we get that. Great image that I'm sure you've heard before. Pastor Nathan has used it when he's introduced that very song, He Will Hold Me Fast. That image of a toddler holding his daddy's hand. You know, the other day we were having some people over. It was uh, Anna and Nate. If you know Anna's boyfriend, Nate, he is not a small guy. He's a very tall man. But it's funny, Braxton was uh, trying to go and greet him. So he ran up to him and held his hand and pulled him into the room. He wanted to show him something. And just had this very striking juxtaposition in that image of little Braxton pulling Nate into this other room. And of course, it wasn't Braxton's grip. It wasn't his strength. It was Nate holding on to him and letting him go forward. But again, we can say that's a very striking image and one that we have too in the Lord Jesus But we get that image of the Lord holding on to our hand. And yeah, while the toddler might think that they're the ones holding on, it's really the dad. It's really the father. It's really the Lord that's holding on. That is David's confession here. He he says, I'm clinging to you, God. But really he knows it's really the Lord clinging to him. It's really the Lord's grip that matters. And this is what the Lord does for those that he loves. He holds fast to us, even when we're barely holding on. I don't know about you. Have you ever been at a place where you've been felt like you've barely held on to your faith? (laughs) Where you're at a place where you think that if there was just one more 
one more hurdle, one more obstacle, one more piece of frustration that you might just have to let go. It's amazing that even when we're in those types of moments, we have a Lord who, as he says here, upholds us with his right hand. It's that old image of the hand of strength, the hand of dominance, the hand of might. And that's who's holding David. And notice, this is what this peace does for David. Notice as he says, because of this hand that's holding him, notice what he says. He, for him, that God's hand was holding him, which it allows him to say in verse 9, but those that seek my soul, those who seek to destroy it, they shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for the foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Here he's attesting. Affirming all of those ways in which his enemies will fall. All of those ways in which those who pursue him, those who seek his life, they will be overtaken, they will be consumed. And as he says in verse 11, they will be stopped, which is literally just a word that means silenced. (laughs) This is his assurance. Because he knows who holds him. He knows who's protecting him. The very hand that is upholding David, holding him as he's barely hanging on in this wilderness of suffering, is the same hand that's stopping the mouths of those who are opposing him. And this is what a wonderful image we have that this is what our God does for us, for all of us. We who are, we might call ourselves terrified souls. God is our We could say strong tower, which isn't just a picturesque word. It's a word which means literally what it says. Proverbs 18.10 says that. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runneth into it and is safe. That's what we have in the Lord. He's a place of safety, of, of refuge for terrified souls. Have you felt... Have you felt scared in the last couple of years with what's going on in our country, with what's going on around the globe? Have you felt as if you can't hang on anymore? Have you felt as if there's something that you can't help, that you feel like you can't get through it, you can't get on? There's too many that are, uh, that, are, uh, b- uh, that are on your heels. They're, they're trying to take you down, as David says here, to destroy it. Those whose allegiance is with God, with this Lord who comes and is a refuge for his children, he says here they get to enjoy his victory. Notice he says in verse 11, they shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. (laughs) This is God's defense of the souls that he loves, the souls that he delights in pouring out loving kindness on. These are his children. This is what we have if we, yes, are suffering, if we're terrified, if we're tired, if we're thirsty, we are free. It's more than free to run into the ramparts of God's faithful love. Knowing that he will hold us fast. Knowing that he will give us refuge. He will give us rest. He will give us replenishment for our souls. So even in our languishing, we have something that is better than life. 
because we have the love of the Lord Jesus and we have the Lord Jesus himself. Let us pray.